Hello everyone, so let's talk about the acute HIV infection in this lecture. Epidemiology, so typically presents two to four weeks after the exposure. So HIV is not always a long lasting chronic condition. You can have acute HIV infection as well. Clinical features include mononucleosis-like syndrome. So if you are suspecting a patient of infectious mononucleosis, think about other features which can rule that out because that case might be a case of acute HIV infection. Mononucleosis-like syndromes include fever, lymphadenopathy, sore throat, and arthralgias. So if a patient is having joint pain, fever, lymphadenopathy, sore throat, sore throat, or maybe they are saying a shallow tender ulcer with white exudate on the posterior oropharynx, and they are saying several large and large discrete mobile lymph node presence with cervical and present over the cervical axillary and the occipital region. And the patient is also having arthralgias. Since last two to four weeks, you should suspect HIV and mononucleosis. But how are you going to differentiate that? The, if there is generalized macular rash, think about HIV. If there is gastrointestinal symptoms, think about HIV. But the patient is having diarrhea or something like that. And think about HIV now. How are you going to diagnose then? Viral load is markedly elevated. You will see that there is more than 100,000 copies per ml. And HIV antibodies test may be negative because it has not yet converted. So if you are testing for HIV antibody, it might be negative. But that doesn't mean... That this we are ruling out acute HIV infection and CD4 count may be normal so CD4 count and HIV antibody testing are not the diagnostic test a specific diagnostic test for acute HIV infection this you will see in chronic or mainly the major HIV like syndrome but not in the acute symptoms viral load will be elevated and how are you going to manage this thing so in this situation you have to give combined antiretroviral therapy also notify the partner which is very very important consider secondary prophylaxis so if a patient is coming to you with a history of multiple sexual partner and really uses condom and acute retroviral syndrome and this patient has acquired hiv infection although many patients are asymptomatic dramatic elevation in the viral load often result in transient manifestation of the symptoms for two to four weeks after inoculation. Symptoms closely resemble the infectious mononucleosis commonly includes the fever, non-tender lymphadenopathy, sore throat, headache, fatigue, and myalgias. Two distinctive features are painful maculocutaneous ulcer, that is shallow discrete white base ulcer. Also, you will see generalized maculopapular rash. So if you don't see a generalized maculopapular rash, look for painful mucocutaneous ulcer which are shallow discrete white base ulcer is and the maculocutaneous rash will also be found seen on the palm and the sole okay so laboratory testing shows leukopenia and thrombocytopenia so you'll see that on the blood count you'll see that platelets are low and uh, wbc are low so focus on the wbc count Diagnosis is made by the combination of 4th generation HIV serological testing. So you do combination of 4th generation HIV serological testing which includes the HIV antigen testing plus HIV 1 and 2 antibody testing. Although you know that antibody might be negative or may be negative but antigen will be positive. And HIV viral load is also seen. 
so you'll see more than 100,000 copies per ml. Treatment with antiretroviral therapy. After resistance, uh, resistance testing, uh, we have done the testing and now we are starting the treatment. Reduces the reservoir of the latent HIV and risk of transmission to other individuals. So we are giving the treatment because it reduces the latent HIV if it will kill if there is any and uh, it reduces the transmission. Okay. What are the differential of such condition? Herpes simplex virus infection, if you are thinking. The patient will have fever, fatigue, headache. Also, there will be multiple ulcerating lesions, tender lymphadenopathy. But see, tender lymphadenopathy, it will not be non-tender. And But in case of herpes simplex virus, diffuse rash is uncommon. The maculopapillar rash we talked about is uncommon. So you can rule that out. Infectious mononucleosis caused by Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus can cause fever, lymphadenopathy and fever, fatigue and sore throat because it's, these are the mononucleosis-like syndromes. Mucocutaneous ulcerations and maculopapillar rash that includes the palms and soles are quite uncommon in case of infectious mononucleosis. Influenza often manifests with fatigue, fever, myalgias and sore throat and headache but in influenza you will have respiratory symptoms which includes cough and nasal congestion. And you have to look for respiratory symptoms to figure out that this patient might have influenza. Like to rule in influenza now. Secondary syphilis, having fever, headache, non-tender lymphadenopathy, fatigue, maculopapillar rashes, including the palms and soul. But the main differentiating feature is a single painful mucocutaneous lesion would be typical, would be atypical because in syphilis, you see non-tender lesions. Okay. Yeah, and then you go for testing of the marker of syphilis, which is normally not seen if a lesion is tender. So acute retroviral syndrome usually occurs in two to four weeks. Symptoms are often nonspecific, but includes the mononucleosis-like symptoms along with the painful mucocutaneous lesions and widespread maculopapillar rash that may include the palm and sole. So this is how you differentiate. Okay, now let's talk about a very different topic that is infant of mother with diabetes mellitus. What are the complications that baby might face? So, there is maternal hyperglycemia. So, in the first trimester, it can lead to congenital heart disease in a child, neuro neural tube defects, small left colon syndrome and spontaneous abortion may occur. So, congenital heart disease, neural tube defect, small left colon syndrome and spontaneous abortion these are the four conditions associated with first trimester maternal hyperglycemia and what are the conditions associated or manifestations you can see in second and third trimester because of the fetal hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia you will see that the metabolic demand is increasing which can lead to fetal hypoxia and you see that there is high erythropoiesis therefore leading to polycythemia so polycythemia can occur in the second trimester if mother is hyperglycemic because that will lead to fetal hyperglycemia and in response insulin will increase that is hyperinsulinemia metabolic demand is increasing fetus is facing hypoxemia which is leading to increased erythropoiesis and polycythemia respectively also you see organomegaly and neonatal hypoglycemia when like when the fetus is coming outside, you see neonatal hypoglycemia because of the insulin withdrawal. 
sorry, because of the glucose withdrawal, but hyperinsulinemia persists. Baby will be macrosomic and it can lead to shoulder dystocia. Brachial plexopathy can occur as a complication of shoulder dystocia. Cervical fracture, I mean, I'm really sorry about that, clavicular fracture. And uh, perinatal asphyxia can occur. So perinatal asphyxia, clavicular fracture and brachial plexopathy. These are the three complications associated with shoulder dystocia because of the macrosomic baby. And decreased production of surfactant leads to decreased lung maturity and neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. So there are a lot of complications in first trimester. You see congenital heart disease, neural tube defects, left small colon and uh, left small left colon syndrome, spontaneous abortion. And in second and third trimester, you see polycythemia, organomegaly, neonatal hypoglycemia, shoulder dystocia leading to brachial plexopexy, clavicular fracture, perinatal asphyxia due to decreased surfactant, neonatal distress syndrome. Now, if a newborn with respiratory distress that is tachypnea, nasal flaring and attraction, and also you see a transient heart murmur, that is transient hypertrophic cardiomyopathic murmur, which is a cardiac anomaly found in infants of diabetes, mother with diabetes. This disease occurs in the late second or early third trimester due to fetal hyperinsulinemia in response to the maternal and the fetal hyperglycemia. Insulin triggers glucagon synthesis and excess glucagon and fat are deposited within the myocardium. So what happened? There is hyperglycemia of fetus and maternal which leads to increased insulin secretion okay, and excess glucagon secretion. Excess glucagon secretion, what does this cause? It causes fat deposition in myocardium, particularly in the intraventricular septum. Increased oxidative stress of the intraventricular septum may contribute to selective thickening. So there you see selective thickening. So if someone asks you what will be the eco-finding of that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, so you will say hypertrophic intraventricular septum. Why? Because of excess glucagon. What happened with that? Fat deposit in the myocardium. Where? In intraventricular septum. What happened after that? Because of the increased oxidative stress, you see that septum can uh, selectively uh, thickens up. Okay, now, hypertrophic intraventricular septum is usually asymptomatic. However, if the left ventricular outflow tract is obstructed, you will see that the baby might manifest with congestive heart failure features. In infant, these can include respiratory distress, tachycardia and hypoxemia. So if a patient is having respiratory distress, tachycardia and hypoxia, it is not only because of the respiratory distress syndrome or baby neonatal surfactant deficiency. It can be because of the congenital heart failure. So leading because of the diabetic mother. Okay. Now, despite the presence of the pulmonary edema, crackles may not be auscultated. Remember, it's not always necessary that you will have a pulmonary edema or something, something like that. Okay. Pulmonary congestions and cardiomegaly may be evident on chest radiography. Echocardiography confirms the diagnosis. Although transient tachypnea of the newborn is a common cause of tachypnea and respiratory distress, the patient's murmur makes transient tachypnea of newborn uh, like a negative diagnosis here. Because if a patient is having murmur, you should think about the HOCM, not the transient tachypnea of newborn. Yeah. 
Also, cardiogenic pulmonary edema rules out transient tachypnea of newborn. Poorly controlled gestational diabetes mellitus has many risks, as I already mentioned. Okay, most of these adverse effects can be avoided by strict glycemic control throughout the pregnancy. Okay, how you are going to do that? You're going to give insulin and dietary control. Ideal fasting blood glucose level should be less than 95 milligram per deciliter in case of gestational diabetic mother. Less than 95 milligram per deciliter. Okay. Now, if you are seeing the patient is having murmur and other difficulty, the newborn, so you should think about other features, other differentials such as Epstein anomaly, where you see atrialization of the right ventricle due to malformed tricuspid valve. Severely affected newborn presence with tricuspid regurgitation and cyanosis. Some infants also sometimes have milder symptoms, but this diagnosis is not common because of the normal second trimester ultrasound. If you see that the patient has the pregnant woman has undergone a second trimester ultrasound and it was normal, so you can rule out Epstein anomaly because you will see features of Epstein anomaly that is utilization of the ventricle in the second trimester ultrasound. Next is hypoplastic left ventricle. Hypoplastic left ventricle or left heart syndrome is an embryologic malformation that occurs early in the first trimester in the infant of the mother with pre-gestational diabetes. If pre it presents with cyanosis and uh, the structural anomaly is often recognized on the second trimester ultrasound. So second trimester ultrasound saying that there is nothing, you should think about HOCM. Otherwise, if it is a hypoplastic left heart syndrome, manifestations can occur similar to the present situation that is cyanosis and uh, other symptoms, but it will be recognized in the second trimester ultrasound. Next is coarctations and narrowing of the aorta. It is typically associated with Turner syndromes rather than a prenatal maternal hyperglycemia. Neonate with the severe coarctations have weak femoral pulses. So if there is coarctation of the aorta, you'll see femoral pulses have are weak and decrease postjunctural oxygen saturation as well. So you have to measure the post ductal oxygen saturation and the femoral pulses. So decreased femoral pulses and decreased postjunctural oxygen saturation, weak femoral pulses, and also you'll see aortic arch indentation that is three sign on the radiography. So these features are not seen that rules out coarctation of aorta. Congenital pulmonary wall stenosis characterized by an obstruction of the pulmonary wall is typically associated with Noonan syndrome. So pulmonary wall stenosis is characterized by Noonan syndrome where there is obstruction of pulmonary wall, right ventricular outflow tract is obstructed and you will see right to left shunting which can lead to cyanosis but cyanosis was not seen in this child and pulmonic wall stenosis if uh, is there it will be visible on the echo so this rules out. So, infant with the mother with diabetes and poor glycemic control are increased risk of transient hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with thickened intraventricular septum, excess glucagon deposition in the fetal myocardium, tachypnea respiratory distress are the early sign of congestive heart failure. So, this is for this lecture. Thank you so much for listening.